Hi, my name is Scott, and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church, or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, www.RestoredTemecula.Church, and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoyed the message. I love you guys. quickly before I jump in. Uh, so today, right after gathering from one to three, we're having a intro and info lunch. If you haven't RSVP'd for that, do me a favor, uh, come anyway. It's going to be at uh, Tracy's house. She's hosting us. We're going to have lunch. We're going to talk through uh, just kind of really the story behind our church, what we're about. We'll share with you kind of the, the vision, the mission, the values, and Honestly, you have an opportunity to ask any questions you have about the church. If, if you're newer with us and you haven't been to one of these, this is kind of your next step. And so I see some new faces and I just want to put it out there to make sure that you know you're not just welcome to come, like you're invited to come. So we can get you all the information, uh, the, the address and stuff. Just find me or, uh, or Herrick before you go today. We'd love to have you join us from one to three uh, in Temecula, intro and info lunch, lunch provided, all that kind of stuff, Okay. Uh, secondly, quick little housekeeping thing. Just want to make sure you guys are aware next Sunday for our, our birthday, our, our birthday gathering. Herrick mentioned what the, the, the gathering is going to look like uh, inside. Right afterwards, we're going to have lunch together. We usually do tacos because it's right around Cinco de Mayo. And we'll have some cool stuff going on for the kids. So plan on joining us for, I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours after gathering, enjoying each other's company and celebrating God's goodness and faithfulness for the past four years. So... All that being said, if we haven't met yet, my name's Tom. I have the privilege of providing leadership to the church as lead pastor on eldership with my wife, Ebony, who's in kids, and the Burgas, Herrick and Heather. They are amazing. And so I uh, would love to meet you if we haven't met yet. And uh, yeah, beautiful morning. I'm feeling like I'm feeling God's presence in a really unique way this morning. Honor and bless worship team. You guys like served us. And you, you, can, you always serve us so well, but I don't know, I just feel God's like kindness in a unique way this morning. And it's interesting because of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, let me start my timer. So we are in this series called The King and His Kingdom, where we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. So it's, it's Matthew, one of Jesus' original disciples, and his eyewitness account of the life, death, resurrection, the ministry of Jesus, okay? And we're calling this series The King and His Kingdom because that's what we're focusing on. We're honing in on Jesus, the king of the universe, and the kingdom upon which he rules and reigns, the kingdom of God, otherwise known as like the kingdom of heaven. So you've heard, you know, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And for whatever reason, kind of modern Western Christians, they, they view the kingdom of heaven, they view the kingdom of God as something kind of distant and out there, something that you go to after you die. And the premise for this series is to really investigate that the, what the Bible says about the kingdom of God, what the Bible says about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, D.A. Carson says that the kingdom of God is more a reign than a realm. It's more a power than a place. 
And it really is this idea of what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of heaven, what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God, that it's a reality that we can experience right now, partly in the present and fully in the future. When I say fully in the future, I'm, what I'm talking about is the idea of like Jesus returning. Jesus coming back to earth ultimately to remove all evil from creation. To refine it, to restore it. It's this, it's this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. If you read the end of the New Testament, it doesn't talk about God's people kind of leaving and going to heaven. No, it talks about heaven coming to earth and making things the way that they should be. The way that he intended them to be. The way that they were in the beginning. Perfectly, perfect relationship between God and man, between man and man, and between man and creation. That's the story of redemption. And so in this series, The King and His Kingdom, where we are currently, whereas we're in the, in the beginning of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the most famous sermon in the history of the world preached by the greatest preacher ever, Jesus. Right? And it's all about the kingdom of God. And as Herrick mentioned, we've been going through the Beatitudes. And, and the Beatitudes, what they are is they're a list of eight kingdom blessings. And it's, it's actually how Jesus begins this most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He begins it with these Beatitudes, these, this list of eight kingdom blessings. And the thing about the Beatitudes is if you read any of them, they are kind of funky. They, they don't really seem to make as much sense. It's like they feel kind of foreign and upside down. It's because there's a different kingdom that Jesus is referencing, his kingdom. And so we're going to wrap up this list of eight kingdom blessings known as the Beatitudes with the final Beatitude today. And hear me, this one, I've, I think I've said this like three or four weeks, but this one might be the most shocking. Uh, this was a challenging week for me. And investigating the depths of what we're going to kind of dive into today in God's word. Open your ears, open your eyes, open your heart. I think God has something for us, okay? So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 again. If you don't have a Bible, the the team's going to throw the words up there for you. I'm in the Christian Standard Bible translation, so if you want to access that translation, it'll probably be most helpful. But before I... Read the word of God. I'm going to pray. So will you join me? Thank you, God. Thank you for the peace of your presence this morning already. I thank you that you never give up on us. I thank you that your love is so great that it transcends everything that's going on around us. No matter how disorienting life can be, no matter what comes our way, there's a transcendent love that holds all things together. And it's the love that you have for your children. And I pray that you'd teach us about that love this morning, Holy Spirit, that you'd point us to Jesus. You know the weariness in my heart. And I pray that you would use me to bless and to honor and to serve these people that I love so much. Thank you that we get to be a family. You're the Father. And because of who you are and what you've done, we get to be eternally related to each other and to you in the most loving of ways. So show us the way, Jesus. We look to you now. Amen. 
Okay, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read this whole list, and then we're going to focus on the last one, okay? Chapter 5, verse 1. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, here comes the Sermon on the Mount, here comes the Beatitudes. Beatitude number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And here's today's, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Keep reading in verse 11. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay. So I want to do two things this morning. I want to talk about what this beatitude means, what it means for us, and what it teaches us about the kingdom of God. Okay, so let's jump in. What does this beatitude mean? Now, I think it's important for us to answer that question. We have to know what it means to be persecuted, right? Now, in the Greek, the original kind of language that this is written in, the word there for persecuted is the word dioko. And here's what it means. It means to pursue, so this idea of like seeking, right, pursuing. It's to pursue with evil intent, right? It's this idea of, of, of like seeking out a person to harm them and to harass them. Maybe and or, harm and or harass them, right? So a modern day example of this would be something that we've all experienced growing up or we've witnessed growing up in school or whatever. It's the idea of bullying, okay? Maybe you grew up and maybe you were the bully, <laughs> Or maybe you experienced bullying or somebody that you loved, you watched them experienced being bullied. We've all witnessed it, right? It's when one kid seeks out another kid to harm them or to harass them. And typically, at least in my experience, when I was growing up, it was always for like a specific reason. I mean, even something as simple as that the bully's just annoyed by that other kid. Or they don't like the way that they dress, or they don't like the way that they talk, or they don't like the way that they act, or whatever, Okay? Typically for a specific reason that they're, they're sought out to harm them or to harass them. Now, that's kind of a version of, of persecution. It's that heart behind it, right? Jesus is specifically referring here to people who are persecuted. Why? Did you catch it? Yeah, they're persecuted because of righteousness, okay? So those who are persecuted because of their allegiance to him. He's their king. They're seeking to live righteously. Righteous means right. So they're, they're, they're seeking to live rightly. They're seeking to live uh, the way that God, the king, would have them to live. His rule, his reign, his ways. You with me? That's what Jesus is referring to here. Those who obey Jesus and practice the way of Jesus with their behavior. Not just with their minds, but with their bodies. Okay? What they do and what they say. So when we talk about the side of Christian persecution, Christian persecution is to seek or to harm, yeah, to seek to harm or to harass people who live life Jesus' way. Okay, I want you to understand this. So in other words, people who are pursuing the kingdom of God, right? 
Now, if you've studied history at all, you know that, man, historically, Christian persecution has been like brutal, like awful, disgusting, terrible. Okay, let me read you a quote from William Barclay. I think there should be a slide for that one, Marshall. Uh, William Barclay is a a theologian, a scholar. He, He says this, quote, The penalties which an early Christian had to suffer were terrible beyond description. All the world knows of Christians who were flung to the lions or burned at the stake, but these were kindly deaths. Listen to this. Nero, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero wrapped Christians in pitch. Do you know what pitch is? It, it's like sap or, or like tar, right? They would, they would like kind of wrap them in, in sap or to cover them in that and then set them alight. So set them on fire and use them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them in the skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. They were tortured on the rack. Do you guys know what the rack is? Oh, it's this torture device where you literally, they'd, they would tie your feet to one end and then tie your hands to the other and they would just stretch you, like pull you apart. So you can picture like, like joints dislocating and muscles being ripped apart. And then when you're in that totally exposed you know, thing, they would torture you in other ways. You can use your imagination with that one. Uh, Barclay continues on. He says, they were scraped with pincers. Molten lead was poured hissing upon them. Red hot, red hot brass plates were affixed to the tenderest parts of their bodies. Eyes were torn out. Parts of their bodies were cut off and roasted before their eyes. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. These things are not pleasant to think about, but these are the things men and women had to be prepared for. Listen to this. If they took their stand with Christ, end quote. It's nasty, huh? Why? Why such brutal persecution of Christians? Because what Barclay says, they took their stand with Christ. What does that mean? Uh, A little over 10 years ago, interestingly enough, my wife and I and my family, we moved to San Diego in 2012 to plant what would be the first restored church with with a team of people. And even prior to moving to San Diego, there was a season of life where I, would, I was like a big um, fantasy football guy, and I was a big like Charger fan. This is when the Chargers were in San Diego, and then they traded their soul. They like, sold their souls to the devil, and they moved to L.A. Um, <clears throat> but either way, they were in San Diego at the time, and, and there was one year where I basically had like season tickets. Um, does anybody remember eBay? Does eBay, eBay still a thing? Do they still? Okay, so they, you can still do stuff on eBay, but eBay was this like, this this marketplace where you could go and like find deals. You could throw out a bid and be like, I'll pay you five bucks for your car. Like it was just like stupid stuff. And then sometimes people would accept your bid and you would, or you'd win the bid and you'd get the stuff. But I remember one year, this guy was selling his season tickets to Charger games. And I threw out some ridiculous offer and he took it. And so now I had, there's eight home games for the season. Now I have like four tickets to eight home games, and I'm like, 
okay, I'm going to as many Charger games as I possibly can. And so that year, it was a really cool year. The team did really, really well. The running back at the time, Ladanian Tomlinson, he won all these, like, he, he, he had these, put all these records. It was like crazy. He broke all these records. But there was one game that was crazy. There was one game that was like, something happened that I'll never forget, and it didn't happen on the field. <laughs> it happened in the stands. If you're familiar with football, uh, with the NFL, you know that the Chargers and the Raiders, they don't exactly get along. There's this deep-seated rivalry between these two teams. And so I go to this game. It's the Chargers and the Raiders. And here's the thing about Raider fans. There's a lot of stereotypes about Raider fans that they're kind of wild and unruly and whatever. And say what you will, I go to this game. One of the things about Raider fans is they're passionate about their team. And so... They have a history in L.A. They were originally in L.A. And so Southern California has tons of Raider fans, and they're passionate about their team. And so what they do, which I actually respect a lot, is whenever the Raiders play in Southern California, they just come out in droves to the point where, especially for Charger games, everybody knew in San Diego, if, it was, if the Raiders were in town, it was no longer a home game for the Chargers because at least half of the stadium would be filled with Raider fans. Okay, so I go to this game, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the game, and I watch, I can hear tons of noise kind of like behind me and to my left, and there's a section behind me and to my left, and it is filled with Raider fans, and you know they're Raider fans because they're wearing the jerseys, they're wearing the hats, they have all the gear, it's clear what team they're rooting for, right? And there's one guy that I can see in that section who's a Charger fan. And he has this, like, really nice leather jacket with, like, the bolt. If you see in the logo, it's like the bolt on the back. It was like this, like, the guy's probably spent way too much money on a Charger jacket, but either way. So he's there. He's in the middle of this Raider section. And they are giving him hell. Like, they are, they are going crazy. It gets to a point where I literally watch, I watch them pour beer after beer on this guy's jacket. And it was like, what's going to happen? Like, this is crazy. This is getting out of hand. The guy eventually kind of got up and left, and he was pretty upset. But what's he going to, I mean, there's a section of 50 Raider fans around him. What's he going to do, you know? He was clearly upset. But he gets up and he leaves. How did you know he was a Charger fan? He's wearing the jacket, right? He's wearing the jacket. His allegiance was to the Chargers. He, he stood with the Chargers, but he was in a section full of Raider fans. Because of that jacket, because of his allegiance to that team, he stood out. And he suffered because of it. You with me? Friends, the people of God, the church, are a distinct, set-apart people on the earth who display and demonstrate their allegiance to who? They demonstrate and they display their allegiance to God. Not with a jacket, not with a jersey, not with a hat, They display and demonstrate their allegiance to God by living God's way, 
by pursuing the kingdom of God. Are you with me? We're going to talk a little bit more about this in a couple of weeks when really right coming, uh, coming right out of this passage, Jesus talks to his disciples. He says, you're the salt of the earth. You're, you're the light of the world. It's this idea of being set apart, about being distinct because of your allegiance to God. So a Christian's allegiance is to Jesus. They stand with Jesus. They live with Jesus as king. And that means that they live differently than the people in their section, if you will. And as a result, Christians stand out and Christians suffer because of it. That's this idea of persecution. I want you to see this. I want you to get this. And hear me really quickly. It's not just like persecution from outsiders. It's not just that like the secular world persecutes Christians. It's the persecution of doing things God's way. I don't want to go too far down this tangent, but I think it's important, especially here in this valley. Listen to me. The people who persecuted the other Christians were who? Primarily. Highly religious people. So don't think it just happens out there. Be very, very careful because it can happen in here. You with me? Christians stand out and they suffer because of it, right? There's a rivalry between the Chargers and the Raiders. Even more so, there's a rivalry between all ungodly kingdoms and the kingdom of God. So, persecution, it results from not conforming to ungodly cultures and systems. And that means you stand out and you suffer because of it. Now, there's this I'm just brilliant Christian sociologist. His name is George Yancey. He does a ton of research. Um, I'll just tell you. He wrote a book called So Many Christians, So Few Lions. And what he does is he, he does a ton of research on Christianophobia in America. Now, Christianophobia is probably what, is what you think it means. It, it is the unreasonable hatred and fear of Christians. So in other words, he studies Americans who are anti-Christian. Get this. He reports that 32% of Americans, that's a third. Think about that. 32% of Americans, a third, quote, like conservative Christians significantly less than other social groups, end quote. Here's some raw data. Uh, I have a quote from you. Uh, you guys might see if you can see that one out there. It starts with my research. Yeah, so this is, I want to read you this quote from George Anthony. He says, my research indicates that those with anti-Christian attitudes are more likely to be white, male, wealthy, highly educated, politically progressive, and irreligious. I sent a questionnaire with open-ended questions to a group of progressive activists who tended to be white, male, wealthy, educated, and irreligious. They were the type of people one would expect to exhibit Christianophobia, and they did. Here are just a few of the answers I received on my survey. Go to the next one. These are real answers from a, que- from a questionnaire. Quote, kill them. I'll go back to that one. Quote, kill them all. Let their gods sort them out. You can go to the next one. There's four of these. This is the second one. I was only going to show you four because it could get real crazy real quick. A torturous death would be too good for them. 
The next one, quote, I'd be a bit giddy, certainly grateful, if everyone who saw himself or herself in that category, Christian, were snatched permanently from our societal peripheries, whether by holocaust or rapture or plague. And the last one, quote, I am only too well aware of their horrific attitudes and beliefs, and those are enough to make me see them as subhuman. End quote. That's not in Saudi Arabia. That's not in Iran. That's not in Africa. That's in America. There's a rivalry between ungodly kingdoms and the kingdom of God. Persecution results from not conforming to ungodly cultures and systems. That means you stand out and you suffer because of it. Yancey talks about that there are like different social institutions where anti-Christian sentiments are the strongest, and he lists four. He says these are the four where the kind of anti-Christian sentiment is the strongest. He lists academia, which is basically like education, media, entertainment, and the arts. Uh, there's another quote I want to read. He, he says this, yeah. Quote, those institutions, so academia, education, right, media, entertainment, and the arts, those institutions greatly shape our cultural values, and thus those with anti-Christian attitudes are in a position to create and sustain anti-Christian perspectives. There is evidence that anti-Christian hate can lead to discrimination. Is that persecution, he asks. This is a complex question I recently struggled with. By a clinical definition of persecution, yes, Christians are persecuted in the United States. But I still, listen to this, this is important, but I still discourage Christians in the United States from saying they are persecuted since what we face today isn't what most people envision when they think of persecution. However, as Christians, we should be aware that anti-Christian discrimination is real. Further, those likely to engage in such discrimination have an ability to shape larger societal values. Thus, anti-Christian discrimination isn't going away anytime soon. Last Sunday, a handful of young people got baptized. Beautiful, incredible moments of them, of them publicly saying, like, I want to follow Jesus. Adults, same thing. Paul, the apostle, he writes a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He goes, Timothy, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what does it say? Will be persecuted. What am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is one of the main things that you need to understand. <clears throat> and that is that Christians can expect persecution. It's certain. The other night, um, my family decided to, that they wanted to watch a dog movie. 
That's right, you heard me, a dog movie. Anybody who's ever watched any of the 10,000 dog movies there are knows how dog movies end. Dog movies end with you crying and feeling totally upside down emotionally because something terrible happens. Other than maybe 101 Dalmatians, I don't know if there's another dog movie that doesn't end without you crying your eyes out because it's so sad, okay? It's inevitable. It's certain. You know how the dog movie is going to end, okay? You want to know what's more certain than a dog movie being sad? I'm trying to insert some comedy here. A Christian inevitably experiencing persecution. It's certain. Like Jesus the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the entire New Testament, it tells us that persecution is certain. It's going to happen. It awaits every Christian, but, hear me, it is possible to avoid it. Every Christian will experience persecution unless, unless they're a camouflaged Christian. When I talk about camouflaged Christian, I'm talking about the ones that kind of fly under the radar. I lived my Christian life this way for probably two or three years. They, they fly under the radar. They, 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 they kind of align themselves with whatever culture they find themselves in. Right? So if they're sitting in the Raider section, they're a Raider fan. If they're sitting in the Charger section, they're a Charger fan. They're... they're they're sinful and secular on Saturday, and then they're singing with the saints on Sunday. It's this idea where, like, people in their lives, they have no idea that they follow Jesus, that they love Jesus, that they're Christian. They don't even, oh, you're a Christian? That's crazy. They don't stand out. You ever been to the zoo? You ever seen a chameleon in person? What do chameleons do? They blend in. Wherever they are, they blend in to whatever environment they find themselves in. They don't stand out. And when I talk about stand out, I'm not talking about standing out for the sake of standing out. I'm talking about the way that light stands out in darkness. It doesn't have to try that hard. It's light. The Bible refers, refers to this idea of kind of blending in, this camouflage, this chameleon. The Bible refers to this as being lukewarm. It's this idea of not being hot, not being cold. And Jesus talks about this in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 15, verse 15 and 16. This is what Jesus says. This is heavy. Just brace yourself, okay? I promise there's relief coming. I'm going to talk about the gospel in just a second, but we need to set it up here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I know your works. Think about that for a second. He says, I know what you do. I know what you do. Guys, how often do we live our lives as though God isn't watching? Always. Jesus goes, I know what you do. I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is like, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. 
Jesus can deal with the cold even, man. Like, you guys know the Apostle Paul? You know his story? He, before he came to Jesus, he literally organized the murder of Christians. He was like the chief persecutor of Christians. And then he encounters God's goodness and grace in the person of Jesus and it utterly transforms him. He goes from being like ice cold, like totally oppressive, persecuting the people of God to fully devoted, passionate servant of the Most High, Jesus, the King of the universe. Jesus can deal with the Pauls. He can deal with the cold, those completely opposed. And obviously Jesus loves the the hot in the analogy, right? He loves the hot. Those, Those people who imperfectly yet passionately are devoted to him, obviously he loves them. But the lukewarm... This tells us Jesus is nauseated by the lukewarm. He spits them out of his mouth. He vomits them out of his mouth. Listen to me. The past two years has been the most challenging two years of my life. Like I've been in full-time pastoral ministry for 16 years. The last two, dude, blow the, uh, the previous 14 out of the water. And one of the things, I'm not the only one, I've talked to different colleagues, um, different leaders in the church, different pastors. <clears throat> Practically every pastor I've heard from and the data that's starting to come in from the last two years all kind of aligns. It's, it's kind of eerie. Usually there's like discrepancies and different things. All of it is coming together and all of it says the same thing. It says that the past two years it says, one-third of the church isn't here anymore. That's almost to the, to the, like, the actual number of, of how many people happened with our church in the last two years. But it's not just us. It's like every pastor I talk to, all the Barna data, all the stuff that's coming in, a third of the church in the last two years, they're not here anymore. There's an encore going on outside. There's a revival going on outside. Yes! Uh, One third of the church isn't here anymore. Maybe it's because Jesus is spitting the lukewarm out of his mouth. You know how painful that is to watch as a pastor? Maybe Jesus is purging his church. Maybe he's refining it. Maybe he's removing impurities. And guys, listen, I understand why people leave, man. Trust me, I get it. It is hard to follow Jesus, especially when the environments that you live in are increasingly anti-Christian, increasingly more hostile to people who follow Jesus. It makes a lot of sense why people choose to live a lukewarm life. I get it. Why? Because persecution awaits every Christian unless they're lukewarm, unless they're camouflaged, unless they're the chameleon, unless they adapt to whatever environment they are in instead of standing with Jesus. And if you stand with Jesus, you're going to stand out and you're going to suffer because of it. It makes a lot of sense why so many people walk away from Christianity because the opposition is fierce. 
We might not experience it as much as other places in the world, but it's real. Um, Open Doors is this Christian organization that's dedicated to helping persecuted, helping the persecuted church around the world. So Christians who find themselves anywhere on the planet, if, if, they're, if they're in hostile situations or they're experiencing persecution, Open Doors kind of exists as an organization to help people in that space. And what they've done is they've tracked the data, like the rise of Christian persecution, and they've done it for years now. And each year what they do is they release what they call their annual world watch list. And, and they examine the 50 countries worldwide where it's most difficult to be a Christian. Okay, quote, here's the latest data we have available. It indicates Christian persecution is higher today than at any other time in modern history. Um, throw up that slide if you would. Check this out. This is just the last year, okay? And when you read these numbers, just like, don't think of numbers. Think, think of faces. Think of names. Let me read this to you. In the past year, 312 million people In the top 50 World Watch List countries alone, 312 million Christians in the world experience high levels of persecution and discrimination for their choice to follow Christ. One in seven. One in seven Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. Then it starts to get real gnarly. 5,898 Christians are kill, were killed for, their, for faith-related reasons in the last year. Like lost their life. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. 3,829 Christians abducted for faith-related reasons. 3,829 Christians abducted for faith-related reasons. Fun Sunday, I know. I'm sorry. Millions of people around the world, man. They suffer. Why? Because they follow Jesus. It's more than acknowledging that he's real. Muslims acknowledge he's real. The demons believe, right? They suffer because they follow Jesus. Listen, we as people, we do everything we possibly can to avoid suffering. We hate suffering, as we should. <laughs> Suffering's not the way it's supposed to be. Pain and suffering is a result of the fall. It's the result of sin. It's not God's intention. We hate suffering as we should. And we as people will do just about anything to avoid it. So hear me. Signing up for an inevitable persecution... Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody sign up for inevitable persecution? Why would anyone endure that for a lifetime? Like choose and volunteer for that. Do you remember when I said that I think this might be the most intense, the most shocking of the Beatitudes? It's because of that. Let's read it again. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. This is our Beatitude. Blessed. Blessed means transcendently happy. Transcendently happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, before I get into verse 11 here, I want you to, I want you to notice the switch that a massive switch takes place. Just in between these two verses, it's huge. 
okay? Big shift takes place here from Jesus talking about those people, blessed are those, and then what does he do? Then he makes it personal. Verse 11, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. Why? Because of me. And here it is. Open your ears. Here it is. Verse 12. Be glad and rejoice. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Why would anybody choose a life of inevitable persecution? The reward. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with backpacking. If you're familiar with backpacking, what you do is you put everything that you need into a backpack, you put it on your back, and you walk miles into the middle of the wilderness. Sounds amazing, right? Some of you are like, I would never do that in a million years. The reason I say I have a love-hate relationship with backpacking is because it's, at times it can be just painful and difficult. Like, you, you literally, your whole body starts to hurt because you're carrying a decently heavy load. You sleep on the ground, so you're not getting a good night's sleep. It's not like a vacation. It's not like necessarily restful. It, it, depending on how far you hike in, you'll get blisters on your feet. It's painful. It can be exhausting. That's the hate side of it. But the love side of it is that you get to see beauty that few people get to see. There's not like a freeway off-ramp that pulls off into like a, the peak of the mountain with an alpine lake and a waterfall. You gotta you got work to get there. The pleasure makes the pain worth it. You with me? I remember the night, middle of the night, my eldest daughter was born in the middle of the night. And I remember sitting there watching my wife, Ebony, in labor. And those of you uh, parents in the room, you, you know exactly what, what I'm talking about. There's this monitor right next to her. And on the monitor, there's this line graph. And what it's doing is it's measuring her contractions in real time. So I'm, <laughs> I'm literally watching my wife. Ex- I'm, I'm watching the pain that she's experiencing in real time like displayed on that monitor. And you'd see like ones that would go up and she'd like wince and it would fall back down. And she'd breathe. And you'd do like different breathing techniques, right? All the things. And I remember there's a couple times where <laughs> the line would go up and it would just keep going and going and going. And I'm like, and I look over at her and just, as you can imagine, this significant amount of pain. So much pain. But then came the pleasure. The pleasure of holding our baby girl. Guys, the, the, the pleasure of new life, the pleasure of knowing your child. Why would anyone give birth? That's why, right? The pleasure makes the pain worth it. Why would anybody choose to go backpacking? Why would anybody choose to give birth? I was talking with, uh, with Dre this morning, and her fingers are like sore because she's been playing guitar all week. Why would anyone choose to play guitar with, the, with your fingers hurting? Because the 
pleasure makes the pain worth it. The pleasures, for the pleasure of the reward, are you getting what I'm saying? Jesus says those who are persecuted, because they stand with him, that those people should be glad and rejoice and that they're transcendently happy because of their reward. When, when, when Ebony gave birth to a million, I became a dad, like my whole life changed. Everything was an about face. And one of the things that changed deeply in me was I appreciated my parents so much more. I mean, I'm like, I'm cleaning disgusting diapers. My kids are pooping on me. They're peeing on me. They're vomiting on me. They're doing all these terrible things to me. (laughs) And I remember being like, you don't sleep, like the sleepless nights, the, the massive amounts of sacrifice. You, got, you feel like you have nothing left to give and you've slept like two hours and two days and then something else happens and you're like, okay, I'm gonna serve you. It cha- and I remember, I remember being like, I had an epiphany. I was, I'm gonna look at them when I'm talking. I remember thinking like, they did this for me. They volunteered to serve me in these ways. And this sucks. (laughs) But they chose to do that. Me experiencing what they experienced, it it made the love of my mom and dad way more real, way more tangible. They chose that. What I'm experiencing now, they did that for me. Youth, just get ready. I'm telling you, the light bulb goes off and you see your parents in a different way. All the ways that they sacrifice, all the ways that they love, all the ways that they serve you and they choose to do it. You'll experience it and it'll change you. Listen to me. Experiencing parenting, it did something in me. Experiencing persecution, it has the same effect how? It makes Jesus' love for you exponentially more real, exponentially more tangible. I mean, he subjected himself not just to persecution. He subjected himself to every flavor of suffering. And he wasn't forced to. He volunteered. He chose to suffer in every way that you and I suffer. So hear me. When a Christian is persecuted, they experience, they, they, they experience a small taste of what Jesus did. And it does the very same thing to them. It makes the love of Jesus come alive in a way that it doesn't come alive unless you're in it. Are you tracking with me? So hear me, the next time that you face persecution, you experience it, or frankly, hear me, this applies to suffering of any kind. The next time you experience suffering of any kind, especially persecution, don't miss the blessing in it. Don't be robbed of the blessing within it, in the midst of it. Jesus felt this very thing. God himself put on flesh with intentionality and he chose to experience this very thing and he didn't have to. He chose to feel this. Why? For me and for you. The next thing you know, you appreciate him so much more when you experience what he experienced. It's not just a concept. It's not just an idea. 
It's an encounter. It's an experience. Parenting, it taught me a lot about the love of my parents. Persecution will teach you a lot about the love of God for you. Now, you've got to understand why. Because for Jesus, the pleasure made the pain worth it. Why did he come? Why did God put on flesh? Because the pleasure made the pain worth it. The pleasure of sparing you from God's wrath made the pain worth it. The pleasure of forgiving you and seeing you set free made the pain worth it. The pleasure of reconciling you and embracing you into the family of God forever, it made every ounce of pain that he willingly suffered worth it. He gave birth to new life. Friends, the reward that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude, can you figure out what it is yet? Did you get it? The reward is him. The reward is him. The pleasure of realizing the depth of Jesus' love for you makes the pain of persecution worth it. That's why anyone, past, present, future, would ever sign up to a life that inevitably leads to persecution. All right, I'll call the band up. I'll close with this. I know it's a heavy morning, guys. But I think there's something here for us. I think God wants to meet us in this space. And can we just be honest for a second? Uh, Our reality, living in Southern California as Christians, as 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 a church, is very different than, than many parts of the world, okay? That's not to dismiss the persecution and the suffering that we experience. I just want us to see things from a sober perspective, okay? So, in light of all this, maybe you're here today, and maybe some of the things that I've been saying are just kind of resonating with you, like you are experiencing persecution, in maybe some subtle ways, maybe some obvious ways, you're experiencing persecution of some kind for standing with Jesus. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe, maybe it's at school. Maybe it's not the coolest thing in the world that you got baptized on Sunday. Maybe it's not the coolest thing in the world that you gather with other people, other peers to investigate Jesus. Maybe if other kids found out about that, it wouldn't be the best thing for your reputation. Hear me. If that's you. If you're in that space, you're like, I'm, I'm feeling some stuff. My coworkers, my boss, my neighbor, my relationship, my schoolmates, whatever it is. Hear me. I'm convinced. I was praying for you this morning. I think God wants to minister to you. I think he wants to meet with you. I think he wants to be intimately close with you. I think he wants to illuminate your heart to just how tangible his love for you is. Uh, Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're here and you're not experiencing persecution. But maybe somebody close to you is, like a loved one is, somebody that you love, someone that you love, someone that you care about. 
or maybe maybe it's not like somebody specific, but you have a heart for like the global church. <laughs> and you know that there are millions of Christians around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, who face a very different reality every day than you do. It's Maybe it's more difficult for them. Maybe they're way more tempted to lukewarmness because of what's at stake in their world. Um, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter to Christians in the city of Ephesus. It's called the book of Ephesians, you know, the letter to the Ephesians. And at the end of his letter, what he does is he asks the Ephesian Christians, he asks them to pray for him. He asks them for prayer. And do you know where he's writing this letter from? Does anybody know? Yes, maybe you know. So he's literally in prison, chains the whole nine, and he's writing this letter to them, and he asks them for prayer. And do you know why he's in prison? He's literally in prison for telling people about the good news and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. It, with his words and his actions, he's doing everything he can to advance the kingdom of God, God's rule, God's reign, God's way. And, and God's kingdom, we're going to talk about this more, it's really upside down. It's like, don't like violently hate your enemies, love them and pray for them. So that's what he's giving himself to. And he, because he's talking about Jesus, because he's preaching the gospel, because he's trying the best he can to live a life that is advancing God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, his ways, he gets put in prison. Talk about persecution, right? So he's in prison. And at the end of the letter that he's writing, while in prison, he asks these Ephesian Christians to pray for him. And do you know what he doesn't pray for? He doesn't say, hey, pray for me. Pray that I would be released from prison. He doesn't say, hey, pray that the persecution would stop. He doesn't even, pray, he doesn't even ask them to pray for relief. Let me, let me read this. I didn't give you guys this one, but listen up, guys. This is, this is the end of this is Ephesians chapter 6, two verses. This is what Paul says. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So Paul asks for prayer, not for relief, but that he would continue to boldly stand with Jesus that he would continue to boldly live for God's kingdom. Why would anybody do that? The reward. So maybe you're here and you're not the one perse being persecuted right now, but there's somebody that you love that is, or your heart breaks for those who are experiencing it in radical ways. India, Iran, North Korea. Guys, it's terrible. And I just didn't, if that's you, maybe God's inviting you to pray. And, and, and listen, to pray for a loved one, like not necessarily that the persecution would go away, but that they would continue to boldly stand with Jesus and experience the pleasure of experiencing him in intimate ways in the midst of the persecution. Do you know what that does to the world around you? 
It literally proclaims the worth of God. God matters so much to her, so much to him, that he would, he would willingly live a passionate life of devotion to Jesus, knowing it's going to put him in prison, knowing it's going to result in molten lead being poured on his body, knowing that he's going to get stretched on the rack, knowing that he's going to get lit on fire and, and be like a human torch at a party. do that because the pleasure makes the pain worth it. And maybe you're here and you're not necessarily experiencing persecution. You can't think of anybody you know and love that's experiencing persecution. But maybe you're here and you feel that like conviction of like, I think I'm a camouflage Christian. I think I'm kind of living like a chameleon. I I think I'm living lukewarm. Can I just encourage you? Can I encourage you with the gospel of Jesus? The good news that Jesus lived the perfect life in your place. He died the death that you and I deserve in our place. Like he makes his mercy, he he makes his forgiveness and grace available to you every moment of the day. So can I encourage you, if that's you, will you just receive it? Maybe for the millionth time this morning, would you receive the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus? You gotta know that he has mercy for you, friend. He sees you. I don't know if you noticed, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He knows what it feels like to be tempted to live a lukewarm life. He knows what, he knows what it feels like to be tempted to go like, man, if I take a stand for Jesus, I, could, I might not get that promotion. I might lose my job. That friend group might not approve of me. Like he knows that temptation. He has mercy for you. He sees you in it. He has compassion for you in it. Receive his forgiveness and grace. The forgiveness and grace of Jesus, I don't know if you know it's the only thing that can transform a human heart. It's the only thing. Try harder doesn't work. No more doesn't work. Receiving the forgiveness and grace of Jesus is the only thing that can transform the human heart. It has the power to transform like lukewarmness into into like lava, into burning passion, desire, love for him and his kingdom. Why would anybody sign up? Why would anybody volunteer for a life that leads to inevitable persecution. Jesus says they're blessed because they have a reward. The reward is him. The pleasure of intimacy with Jesus, no matter the circumstance, it makes the pain of persecution worth it. You get it? Okay. You're probably where I was this week now. And Jesus says that that sober-mindedness Jesus, we desire you. We desire more of your rule and your reign in our life. I confess it's so foreign to me. I I like, I just want to feel good. Like, I just want to feel good. And I thank you that in your infinite wisdom that you're way more concerned about my soul deepest parts of who I am 
And so I pray for each of us this morning. I pray that you would lead us, that you'd shepherd us, that you'd guide us in what you have for us and you'd give us faith to trust you and to step into what you have for us. A life of standing up with you, standing out because of it and with courage and boldness facing anything that comes our way because the pleasure of knowing you and being known by you and being intimate with you and loving you and being loved by you makes any pain we experience worth it. I pray that we too, we wouldn't be like, we wouldn't be ignorant to the cost of following you, but that we would see you in all of your worth and that our life, our, literally our life would testify to the world around us of your worth. And that as a result, people would see you more clearly. Christians, non-Christians, friends, family, ourselves, all of it. You're the reward, Jesus. You're the reward. Nothing can take you away from us. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. Uh, for the next 15 minutes, uh, we're going to have some intentional time right now and give you an opportunity to respond to God. The band's going to lead us uh, in, in times of praise. You can respond to Him with your voice, with your body declaring he's worthy by singing to him, by giving your heart to him. You can meditate, you can pray. There's trusted men and women kind of scattered throughout the room with lanyards. They've made themselves available to pray for you. If you're one of those three categories of people where you find yourself in a space, frankly, listen, if you need ministry of any kind, if you just like, I need to be encouraged by the reality of God's love, or I'm really suffering with this, I need wisdom, I need deeper parts of my heart to be healed, I need my shoulder to be healed, if you're in need, there's trusted men and women that are available in the back to pray for you, to pray over you. The band's gonna serve us and lead us. Next 15 minutes. This is the whole, like this is the climax of our gathering. This is, my message was the previews to the movie. This is you engaging with God and letting him minister to you. Okay? Love you guys very much. Enjoy him. And then Herrick will be up in about 15 minutes to close us out. we thank you that you sent your son for us. I thank you about this morning. I thank you that he endured the pain of the cross for the pleasure of rescuing a people for himself, for the pleasure of reclaiming the nations, for the pleasure of being installed as king, as the rightful king of this world. We thank you. Thank you that it wasn't, it doesn't, it didn't depend on us getting our act together, that it was actually very much when we were at our worst, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for that. And I pray that we'd experience that love, that joy, that delight today, each of us individually and us collectively. We love you and we thank you. And it's your name we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat and close us out here. There's a rivalry between ungodly kingdoms and God's kingdom. And in that rivalry, in the midst of it, there's pain. 
there's pain for everybody. So we have two choices ahead of us. We can blend in or we can be bold. We can blend in or be bold. And I think that as for the disciples in the room, those of, those of us who identify as Christians at this point in time, I think that that prayer for boldness, I think Tom talked about it from the Apostle Paul, that could be a totally normal thing in our communities. For our gospel communities, for the group of men and women and young people who get together, that's right, youth in the back, not in the back, in the side, very much in the forefront, like this is for us, for our gospel communities. Prayers for boldness can be totally normal. It is okay to feel fear. It is okay to feel like, I don't know if I have what it takes. That's okay. We can pray for boldness as communities, as we press into what God has for us, as we live in that kind of tension between the ungodly kingdoms of this world and God's kingdom, his rule and reign that we're being invited to every day. But I don't want to just talk to the disciple. I also want to mention, if you are not yet a disciple, we're so glad that you're here. If you're kind of, if you're here and you're working through what it means to follow Jesus, who is he? I guess I just want to leave you with one question. Because we were talking about persecution today. I was thinking about this reality of why would people go through the things that Tom talked about that was on the Georgie Yancey slide or in the New Testament or just in church history? Why would people go through something like that for something they think is a lie (laughs) or something they're not really convinced about? Obviously, you don't get sawed in half unless you think there's a good reason to. The thing that you are holding on to is more valuable than the thing that you would have in the moment temporary relief or reprieve. What's my point? Jesus is alive. We celebrated this last week in Easter. We actually kind of celebrate it every week. Every week is kind of like Easter because we get to proclaim him and remember him. But he's alive. That's why people get sawed in half. That's why people are willing to endure persecution because he's real. And so if you're not yet a disciple, that's totally fine. I guess my loving challenge would just be, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay with this history? Granted, Christian history, I want to be really clear, complicated. It was messy. I'm talking about the faithful remnant, the faithful group of men and women who have loved their enemies, who have washed their feet, and who have been being willing to suffer persecution, ridicule, physical violence, and who have not retaliated have been willing to die for their friends, for their enemies, because that's what Jesus is like. And they do that not because of, of a lie, but because he's the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. So that is what I give to you today if you're not yet a disciple, Jesus. Let's talk about him. We'll get coffee if you'd like. And some of us are just hurt, if we're just honest. Like, we've just, we come out of church with baggage, and we're, we're back in church, and it's like, here we go again. I don't know why I just yelled that out. Here we go again. It's like, it's, it's just weird. It's like we have all this pain and baggage that we've experienced. And a lot of it, as I've talked to more and more people, as I've tried to understand this kind of evangelical bubble that has existed in America for decades, that I somehow missed growing up Roman Catholic. One good thing, not the only good thing. There's plenty of good things about being Catholic, but I just miss a lot of that stuff. A lot of people, although Catholics have their own share of this too, you just grew up with guilt and shame. You just grew up feeling discarded and used as a human. 
when Jesus came to free us from guilt and shame, when he came to restore our dignity as human beings, and when he came to invite us into a life-changing partnership with himself. What's my point in saying all this? For some of us as disciples, it's prayers for boldness. Some of us, it's grappling with Jesus. Some of us, it's just experiencing his love increasingly untangled from the baggage that we have about what church is or isn't. It's experiencing him, like really who he is, because he came to liberate captives. He came to restore joy and beauty and honor and dignity to us. And we get to be his partners in the world. So what is it for you? What is he putting on your heart and mind today? What is your next step? I want to encourage you to pray through that and think through that this week. We got five minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and do a soft close. We have, if you don't know what it is for you, but you feel a hunger to, for more, there's people in the back that can pray for you. So I just want to encourage you to go get prayer. And in five minutes, if you could go, please grab your children by 12 o'clock. That's when kids ministry is going to transition. It's going to be done. So you have five minutes. I'm just going to quickly pray. Thank you, Father, for this morning. We love you. We're grateful to you. Pray that you would identify like what our next step is for each of us. Maybe it's prayers for boldness. Maybe it's just reckoning with Jesus and who he is. And sometimes, for some of us, it's going to be reckoning with Jesus in the midst of the baggage that we carry to experience his beauty and his life-changing, freeing power. God, we love you and we're grateful to you. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Real quick, one last thing. Uh, at one o'clock, it's the intro and info lunch. Some of you have already RSVP'd and you got the address. If you would like to come and you haven't RSVP'd, great. The information about where the lunch is is actually on our app or on our website, restoretomecula.church events, or just Google, download our app and you'll see all the info there. If you have any questions, we'll be right here. We'd love to help you. Enjoy.